Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman. A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So over the years, we've had experts on the podcast to talk about how to defend yourself, guys like Tim Larkin and Tony Blauer. But one thing we never really covered is like, how do you know when your use of force to defend yourself, whether it's lethal or non-lethal, is justified? And what are the legal consequences if your self-defense isn't justified? Well, today on the podcast, I talked to attorney Andrew Bronca about his book, The Law of Self-Defense. Andrew and I discussed the common legal myths people have about self-defense, how self-defense differs in civil and criminal cases, and when the law says you can defend yourself and how you can do it. Whether you're dealing with a person threatening your life or whether there's some jerk who's shoving you to the bar saying, let's take this outside, knowing how to defend yourself isn't enough. You need to understand the legal implications of your actions as well. After the show's over, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash self-defense law, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Andrew Bronca, welcome to the show. I'm very happy to be here, Brent. Let's talk a bit about your background because it's an interesting one. You're an attorney, but you're also a firearms instructor and a competitive shooter. Uh, what sort of firearms competition do you take part in? Is it three gun? Well, I was a competitive shooter long before I was an attorney. I started competitive shooting as a kid, actually, shooting small bore rifle in, uh, in school. My high school had a uh, rifle range in the, underneath the cafeteria in the basement of the building. And that's where we used to practice and uh, hold our matches. Yeah, um, that's how old I am. And uh, then as an adult, I got into, uh, I switched from the rifle to mostly handgun shooting, starting with uh, USPSA. And then when IDPA started, I was fortunate to play a, a very modest founding of IDPA, which is one of the newer practical pistol sports. Uh, my IDPA number is 13. I believe they have over 25,000 members now. So I was there at the very beginning. And that's been where most of my competition has been for the last 10 years or so. Fantastic. And so did your interest in firearms lead you to be an attorney or is that something like I got to make a living and I'll find a way to dovetail my interest in firearms into my legal work? You know, we weren't a, a household that was wildly into guns, but we always had guns in the home like most American households do. And I just found that uh, I really enjoyed it. And if I applied myself, I could be pretty good at it. So it was just a, a fun activity to engage in. Then, of course, once I became an adult, Especially once I started a family, it took on a more serious tone. It wasn't just fun anymore, but it was a fundamental responsibility, I thought, to be able to defend myself and my family. Uh, and that's largely the reason I switched my focus from the rifle to the handgun. Okay. And uh, in your legal work, is there something you specialize in? Do you specialize in self-defense or is it something do you do other work in your legal work? Well, when I started this... Uh, I had been an attorney for, I think, four or five years, and I would go to, as a competitor, I would go to matches and gun shows and gun stores, and I would overhear people giving each other advice what to do if they've ever had to act in self-defense, and the advice was absolutely horrific. It was things like, we've all heard, if you shoot someone outside your house, make sure you drag them inside the house before you call the police. I mean, things that would turn a perfectly lawful defensive shoot into something that looks a lot like manslaughter. And I would explain to them why they don't want to do this. And they'd say, okay, we understand. Uh, but what's the source that someone like us, a non-attorney, can go to to learn what the law of self-defense actually is as opposed to what our buddy the cop told us or what we heard about on the internet or in a gun magazine? 
And it turned out there just, there wasn't a good source, even very many good sources for attorneys, much less people who were not attorneys. And that's what led me to write the first edition of our book, The Law of Self-Defense, way back in 1998. And since then, legal practice has been exclusively use of force law. So we don't do any other kind of legal work at all. Okay. So yeah, let's talk about the, the law of self-defense. Um, you know, in America, and there's people who are listening who are not, uh, who don't live in America, but you know, in the, it's, it's a right in America. You can have a firearm to defend yourself uh, under, we follow, you know, common law and under common law, there are, uh, it allows to defend yourself uh, using physical force or sometimes lethal force if necessary. Um, but with that, ability, that right to do that, that comes some responsibility, right? And of understanding the law and, and what allows you to do that. So I'm curious in your, I mean, it sounds like you've sort of mentioned this in, already in your, in, in, so what you said already is that um, doesn't seem like the, the legalities of uh, self-defense gets covered very much in depth when people buy a gun or go to, you know, you know, gun training. Has that been your experience or just doesn't get covered that much at all or just sort of gets glossed over? In general, either it doesn't get covered or it gets covered superficially or it gets covered incorrectly. Uh, a lot of people think they know a lot about self-defense law and they may have, have a lot of knowledge, but unfortunately, often the knowledge they possess is wrong. Uh, there are many sources of self-defense law out there, but most of them are bad sources of self-defense law. Uh, your buddy who owns. So, what are some of the common? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, you know, your your friend, the cop who lives down the street, he's gotten some use of force training in the academy, but most of what he knows uh, applies more to police officers than to non police officers. Uh, most attorneys you'll meet don't know much of anything about self defense law. They might have had a few minutes, literally minutes, on it in law school. Unless they're a criminal defense attorney, they have no professional need to know anything about self defense law. And even if they're a criminal defense attorney, most of their sense cases are going to be what I would refer to as bad self-defense cases, bad guys who are simply raising a claim of self-defense to try to escape criminal liability for their unlawful use of force. Attorneys, even criminal defense attorneys, get very, very, very few good self-defense cases over the course of an entire career. And because of that, I mean, what are, what are some of the myths uh, about self-defense law that's out there? Oh, there's all kinds of misinformation. Uh, there's there's uh, misinformation in terms of what kind of force you can use in response to different kind of threats that you could simply, uh, for example, uh, use a gun if you're merely afraid of some kind of threat that you're facing, regardless of the degree of threat, uh, the circumstances under which you can use, uh, that you have uh, exceptional ability to use different degrees of force under certain circumstances, especially around a person's home. Uh, a lot of people get in their head that if a certain set of conditions are met, immediately triggers their right to use deadly force against another person. And usually they're wrong about the circumstances that they have in mind. Um, so there, there are a, a bewildering array of ways that people get themselves into trouble on a self-defense claim. Now, the good news is that actually learning the law of self-defense is not that complicated. Uh, in all 50 states, there are literally only five conditions that have to be met to use force in self-defense. And if people take the trouble to learn those five conditions that have to be met, it's not hard for them to stay within the rules. The difficulty is when they don't know what the rules are, they tend to make mistakes, uh, not through malice, not because they're bad people, but through ignorance. And they accidentally step outside those five conditions. And a claim of self-defense is very binary. It's like switch that's either on or off. Either you fall within the rules and you have zero criminal liability for your use of defensive force, or you fall outside the rules. And if you fall outside the rules, whatever your use of force was, it was not self-defense and you're facing very serious criminal charges and perhaps much of the rest of your life in jail. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's these five factors. Um, and as you said, uh, it's they usually don't follow them out of ignorance. But as you and I both know, ignorance of the law is no defense. You can't say, well, your honor, I didn't know what the conditions were. And that's not going to get you out. Absolutely not. And of course, uh, these five conditions that I mentioned, uh, prosecutors know, obviously, what those five conditions are, and the, all five of them have to be present. When a prosecutor is looking at that investigative report from the, the detectives uh, that has witness statements and forensics evidence and everything having to do with your use of force, what he's looking for is the ability to defeat one of those five elements. If he can prove it's not there, 
then your claim of self-defense simply disappears and the jury will never hear the words self-defense said in your trial. And this is, this is very awkward because you're making a claim of self-defense. You're implicitly admitting to the underlying use of force. A claim of self-defense is a claim of admission. In other words, you're saying, yes, it was me who used that force, but I had the legal justification of self-defense. Well, if you lose that legal justification of self-defense, all that's left is your concession. In other words, a confession to the underlying crime. And that becomes a very easy conviction for a prosecutor. Okay. So uh, the, 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 the book is geared towards uh, individuals who are you know, planning to use a firearm for their self-defense, whether in their home or on their person. Uh, but as I was reading through this, I was like, you know, this is probably applicable for people who don't plan on using a firearm or a weapon in self-defense. If you just decide to, I'm going to get in a fight or I'm going to you know, punch somebody like this, this stuff will come up, come into play as well. And, uh, it can get you into trouble that you might not think about at the time. Um, so let's, let's walk through the laws of self-defense. So first off, let's talk about, I mean, you've been talking about, uh, um, you know, prosecutors, that's the realm of uh, the criminal, uh, trial world, but, uh, there are civil implications of using force in a self-defense situation. So let's talk about this. How do the laws of self-defense differ in civil and criminal cases? I mean, how are the burdens different, for example? Sure. Well, generally speaking, the elements of your defense uh, are the same in criminal court and civil court. What changes is the burden of proof and who has to make that burden of proof. So in a criminal case in 49 states, once you've raised a claim of self-defense, it becomes the responsibility of the prosecutor to disprove your claim of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's the biggest thing uh, a good self-defense act has going for it is the tremendous burden on the prosecutor to disprove that claim of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, I say 49 states. There's one state in which that's not the case. That's the state of Ohio. In Ohio, if you raise a claim of self-defense, you have to prove that claim by a preponderance or a majority of the evidence, as opposed to the prosecutor having to disprove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Very, very different standard of evidence. In a civil case, if someone accuses you, sues you of having caused them some injury deliberately and you want to argue self-defense, uh, then you also have to be able to prove self-defense by a preponderance of the evidence, much as is required in Ohio in a criminal Okay. Oh, and um, before we go on, I thought we should probably do the obligatory disclaimers. Uh, you are an attorney, um, but we shouldn't, people who are listening, this shouldn't construe this as legal advice. Um, it's information purposes only. Um, I know as my law school days, my ethics class, I remember we had to had a section about this, about legal advice. So obligatory disclaimer right there. So and with that difference between um, criminal law and civil law, civil cases, I mean, is there an instance where, you know, you could possibly prove self-defense on a um, criminal case and but be found liable in a civil case? Sure, absolutely. Because in most states, to for your claim of self-defense to be disproven, it has to be disproven beyond a reasonable doubt, meaning not just a majority of the evidence, but a large majority of the evidence has to disprove your claim of self-defense. Let's pretend that means 90% of the evidence, 95% of the evidence. It's not actually a specific number, but it's that order of magnitude that we're talking about for your claim of self-defense to be defeated in a criminal court. In a civil case, on the other hand, to defeat your claim of self-defense, they have to disprove it by a majority of the evidence, 51% of the evidence, a much easier burden. So it's quite possible that your claim of self-defense will be sustained in a criminal court, not disproven in a criminal court, but easily disproven in a civil court. And of course, we see this in other contexts all the time. For example, in the, in the well-known O.J. Simpson trial, he was acquitted in criminal trial, uh, but then when he was sued civilly, he was easily found liable in civil court. Okay. So yeah, you, just because you get off on a criminal case or, you know, you found, I'm hating saying get off, but you know, um, you're found uh, not guilty um, and you're able to use self-defense, your, your troubles might not be over. You could still be in court for a civil case and you might have to pay. Absolutely. I mean, the, the saving grace with most of the civil suit uh, type of events occurs in states that have some kind of self-defense immunity law. Uh, in which if you're found to have acted unlawful self-defense, you're granted immunity from civil suit, uh, in which case you should be sued at all. Uh, but not all states have those, and the conditions for uh, qualifying for immunity varies considerably from state to state. 
Okay. So let's start getting into these elements of uh, when self-defense is justified, whether using lethal or non-lethal force. Um, so let's start the first one. What's the threshold that must exist in order for you to justify that you were acting in self-defense? Well, for any use of force to be lawful self-defense, it needs to meet five conditions, or I should say up to five conditions, uh, what we call, attorneys would call five elements. Uh, and those are innocence, eminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. And innocence basically means you must not have been the aggressor in the fight. An aggressor cannot claim self-defense. Sounds obvious enough. Uh, eminence meaning that you were defending yourself against a threat that's about to happen to you right now. So not someone who says, well, I'm going to go home and get a gun and come back and shoot you. That's a future threat. That's not an imminent threat. So you can only defend yourself against an imminent threat. Proportionality means that you can only use as much force as necessary to stop whatever the threat is. So against the non-force threat, someone's just going to shove you, for example, you can use only non-deadly force in self-defense. Against a deadly force threat, someone has a knife. You can use deadly force to defend yourself. Um, avoidance has to do with whether or not you have an obligation to try to retreat from the fight uh, before you can use force in self-defense. Uh, and this is the area that has the biggest variance among the 50 states. Uh, some states impose a legal duty to retreat before you can act in self-defense. Other states, the large majority of states, are stand-your-ground states where you don't have such a legal duty. And the last element is reasonableness. Everything you see... All the decisions you make, everything you do has to have been that of a reasonable and prudent person. If you act unreasonably, then you fail on that particular element. And as I say, these elements are cumulative. They all have to be present. And if any one of them is missing, your claim of self-defense disappears entirely. So that, of course, is the prosecutor's job, to try to destroy one or more of those elements and your claim is self-defense. The job of your defense attorney is to make sure that they're all present. Okay, so let's talk about some of these elements. Uh, like, for example, innocence. Uh, yeah, it's obvious that if you, know, if you want to claim self-defense, you, ha you can't be the aggressor, the one who in initiated the fight. Um, but there's moments in a fight where you might not have been the original aggressor, but you turn into the aggressor and you're no lo you can no longer claim self-defense. So can you walk us through some hypotheticals where that you might have been acting in self-defense at first, but... As things went on, you're no longer acting in self-defense? Yeah, so people tend to lose on the element of innocence to get in trouble on the element of innocence in one of two ways. Uh, one way, unfortunately, is they were, in fact, the aggressor. Uh, we all think we're the good guys. We would never be the aggressor in a fight. But we all have bad days. And every once in a while, someone acts irrationally, and they become the aggressor in a fight, in which case they would not normally qualify for self-defense. Now, having said that, there are ways to recover from that kind of mistake, gain your innocence. And I'll touch back on that in a moment. More commonly, how good guys get in trouble on the element of innocence is not that they're actually the aggressor, but they conduct themselves in a way that looks like they were the aggressor or can be made to look as if they, they were the aggressor. Uh, to give you an example, we had a case in our office where one of our clients was challenged to a fight. They were in, He was in a bar. These things happen in bars a lot for some reason. Uh, he was challenged to a fight. The other guy went outside taking off his coat. Uh, and our client said, well, this is crazy. I'm not going to fight this guy. I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to go home. And our client walked out the door to go home and the person attacked him and a fight ensued. The police showed up and our client wanted to claim self-defense. But the prosecutor said, well, no, your client was challenged to a fight and he went out to a fight. If he consented to the fight, then it, he was a co-aggressor. It wasn't an act of self-defense. The prosecutor was able to do that because what did our client's conduct look like to witnesses in the bar? Our client got challenged side tight. Our client went outside and got into a fight. It looked like he wanted that to happen. Uh, what our client should have done is gone out a different door, had the bartender call the police, call the police himself, has a cell phone these days, of course. Uh, unfortunately, when you act in a way that can be interpreted as if you were the aggressor, you open the door for the prosecutor to argue that you were the aggressor and therefore don't qualify as self for self-defense. So we always have to be cognizant, not just of what we're actually doing or intending to doing, but how our conduct can be perceived by people who are going to be giving statements to the police, because that's what the prosecutor is his decision on. Now, in terms of whether or not you were made to look like an aggressor or actually lost your mind and were the aggressor in a particular event, uh, there are ways to regain your innocence. And one way to your innocence is to withdraw from the fight communicate your withdrawal to the other person. So say you bought that brand new sports car you've always wanted. You're driving it the first day and some idiot bangs a shopping cart off in the parking lot and you're enraged and you get out and you shove them. Well, you're the aggressor in that fight. 
you've started a non-deadly force fight. But if you immediately come to your senses and say, oh my God, what am I doing? Sorry, I don't want to get into a fight. You back off from the fight. And he pursues you and re-engages you. What's happened then is you've regained your innocence by withdrawing. And now he's the aggressor in a second fight. So that's a way for people who, even if they've acted as the aggressor, could be made to look as the aggressor, can regain their innocence and regain their ability to claim self-defense. Gotcha. And in another situation, so like I guess you, the example of the bar fight, that's mutual combat, right? It's when you decide, let's take this outside, guys. Exactly right. So let's go outside and settle this like men. Uh, those are co-aggressors. Neither one of them can lawfully claim self-defense for their use of force. Right. That is incredibly stupid. It, it's, it's stupid on many levels, of course. Uh, not just the legal level, but the survival level. We all have to keep in mind that just because we're the good doesn't mean we're going to win the fight. Uh, we're all a 50 cent box cutter from sitting on the curb with our hand against our neck and bleeding out because the other guy got in a good shot on us. Uh, the fact that we may have been acting lawfully doesn't help you in that circumstance. So uh, I urge all my clients for obvious reasons, not just the legal, but also the survival reasons. You do not want to get into a fight. You absolutely have to, because not only could you end up in legal jeopardy, you could die. Right, right. And then another instance of where um, you might start off in self-defense is you're defending yourself, but then the original aggressor decides to flee, but you keep pursuing. And I guess in that instance, you would be... Right, it's a good point. So I talked about the ability to uh, regain your right to self-defense by withdrawing from the fight. Well, it's not just you who can regain your right to self-defense. That other guy can regain his right to self-defense. So if you're attacked by somebody and you're defending yourself and suddenly he stops fighting, doesn't want to fight anymore, uh, he's regained his innocence. And if you pursue him, you decide you're going to give him some of his medicine. Well, you've just become the aggressor in a second fight. And guess what? Now he can claim self for his use of force against you in that second fight, and you can't. So for Pete's sake, if you're able to separate yourself from a fight, don't do anything that even looks like you're trying to re-engage. Okay. So let's talk about the... Uh the the proportionality, right? Um, if someone is attacking you with a non-lethal force, you have to use a non-lethal force. Um, if someone's using lethal force, you can use lethal force. So what constitutes lethal force? I mean, I, obviously a firearm, a knife, but any other situations where lethal force would be like, okay, you could actually use lethal force to defend yourself. Sure. Proportionality is one of the places that is uh, where people most commonly get into trouble. Good people most commonly get into trouble. Um, when we're talking about proportionality, we're talking about that degree, that intensity of force that's involved in the fight. And as you say, there tend to be two buckets, either non-deadly force or deadly force. And deadly force is any force that can cause death or grave bodily injury. Uh, so for example, a sustained beating uh, could well qualify as grave bodily injury, meaning you could use deadly force to defend yourself against that. Even if the beating wasn't likely to cause death, if it was likely to cause grave bodily injury, that's sufficient to be a, what the law calls a deadly force threat that you can use deadly force against in self-defense. Uh, obviously, a, a force that can cause death qualifies as a deadly force threat, like a gun or a knife. Where people tend to get into trouble uh, is not so much when they're facing a deadly force threat because then they can really use any degree of force to defend themselves. It's when they're facing a deadly force threat and they use a deadly force in self-defense. And unfortunately, this happens more and more these days because pretty much every state now has some kind of provision for concealed carry of a firearm. So we have a lot of people who get their concealed carry permit. They have a gun on their person. Uh, they perceive a threat. They get scared. And unfortunately, the only tool of self-defense that they've bothered to carry on their person is that gun. That's it. And they're facing a threat that scares them, but in fact is not a deadly force threat. And if you're facing a non-deadly force threat, you're not allowed to use deadly force in self-defense. But because their only tool is a gun, a deadly force means a self-defense, they end up going to the gun. And they pull a gun against a non-deadly threat. And if you do that, your use of force was not proportional and you simply don't qualify for self-defense. So one of the things we urge our clients to do, and I do personally, I should mention, I have a carry permit. I've carried a gun every day of my adult life. We're lawfully permitted, of course. Uh, and when I carry a gun, I also carry a non-deadly means of self-defense. Typically for me, it's pepper spray. Uh, but it's very important to be prepared for that non-deadly force attack with a tool other than your gun. In fact, if you look at the FBI statistics, they'll tell you you're five times more likely to be the victim 
of a non-deadly force attack against which you can't use your gun than against a deadly force attack against which you could use your gun. So if all you have is the gun, you're preparing for actually the less common form of attack you're likely to face. So it's very important. If you're going to have a gun or not have a gun, it's very important to make sure you also have some means of non-deadly form of self-defense so that your deadly force, I'm sorry, so that your force in self-defense is proportional to whatever the threat is that you're facing. Right. It reminds me of that phrase, you know, if the only thing you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And unfortunately, when people don't think this through, they end up facing some non-deadly force threat. They go to the gun and then they're shocked to discover that they're being charged with aggravated assault. And that they can't justify that use of the gun as lawful self-defense because it was disproportional to the attack. And then they're facing 10 or 15 years in prison. And they legitimately, genuinely, in faith, believe they were acting in lawful self-defense. But because of their ignorance, because they didn't understand the simple rule of having to stay proportional, uh, they put themselves in tremendous legal jeopardy. Okay. I mean, I guess also that would uh, mean that, you know, besides carrying like a knot, like a pepper spray, but also, you know, staying physically fit, uh, getting martial art training might also be another way you can train to uh, ensure that you, you know, you stay proportional and when you do have to defend yourself against a non-lethal attack. Absolutely. So people who are into martial arts, who train diligently, uh, their bare hands and feet might be more than sufficient non-deadly force tools in self-defense. I do have to caution something about martial arts, however, and that is that uh, we run into this quite a bit. Martial artists believe that as long as they're not using a weapon, uh, then that means as a matter of law, they're not using deadly force. It's really important to keep in mind how the law defines deadly force. It's not just force that can cause death. It's force that can cause death or grave bodily harm. And there are a lot of martial arts techniques that don't cause death, but do cause grave bodily harm. There are joint locks, for example, that can destroy an elbow or destroy your wrist very easily. Uh, That would clearly constitute grave bodily harm, and you're not lawfully entitled to use those kinds of martial arts techniques unless you are facing a deadly force threat. So it's very important for martial artists to keep in mind, especially when they have these higher skill sets and they're capable of causing genuinely serious injury, uh, that just because they're not using a weapon doesn't mean that they're not using what the law would call deadly force. Okay, good caveat there. So let's talk about this. I think this goes to the uh, reasonableness element. Let's say um, you are mistaken about the lethal, you know, the deadliness of the force being used against you. For example, let's say you you think the guy has a gun, so you, you know, shoot him or stab him with your knife, whatever, but he ends up, it doesn't have a gun. Uh, what does the law say about mistaken self, you know, using mistaken uh, lethal force in a situation? Yeah, this happens uh, quite a bit, actually. In fact, it happens several times a year just with law enforcement officers where they, they shoot somebody. And it turns out that the bad gun was a toy of some kind or an airsoft pistol. Um Now, the law of self-defense entitles you to defend yourself against uh, the appearance of a threat, the reason appearance of a threat. You're not expected to make perfect decisions in self-defense. You're expected to make reasonable decisions in self-defense. So if someone displays an object that to a reasonable person looks like a real gun, you're entitled to treat it as if it were a real gun. You're not supposed to take the time to figure out whether or not it could theoretically be a toy. you don't have the time for that, and the law recognizes that. There's a phrase from an old Supreme Court case from 1921 that says, a detached reflection cannot be expected in the presence of an uplifted knife. Uh, the law recognizes that under the stress of an attack, you have to make quick decisions. Those decisions don't need to be perfect. They just need to be reasonable. So if you've made a mistake, you thought you were facing a real gun. It turns out to be a toy gun. Literally, you've made a mistake, right? That was a mistake in observation. Uh, no matter if you made a mistake, as long as the mistake was a reasonable mistake. Okay, and that's the true both in criminal and civil? Absolutely. Okay. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. 
So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Um, so let's talk about this uh, th- this imminence threshold um, because I think that can also get people in trouble. Where th- in order for you to justify self defense using either lethal or non lethal force, um, the threat has to be imminent. So what does imminent mean? Um, is it actions or can words or I mean what what's involved in that? Sure. So imminent means the threat's about to happen right now in the next few moments. You'll suffer the injury unless you don't immediately respond in self-defense. Uh, where people sometimes trouble is someone threatens them with some future harm and they decide, well, I may as well settle this business right now. And they become the aggressor in a fight against which the other threat was not yet imminent. So someone says, I'm going to go get my friends and come back here and beat you up, or I'm going to go get a weapon and come back and beat you up. The law expects you to do something other than immediately use force against that person. You can leave the area, you can call the police, but they don't want you to start a fight over a future threat. Uh, now, there are uh, a number of um, 
uh, frameworks that can be used to evaluate whether or not a threat is imminent. The most common one is something called AOJ, Ability, Opportunity, and Jeopardy. And essentially what that means is does the other person have the physical ability to cause you harm? Uh, for example, a small child would not typically have the ability to cause a grown man harm. Do they have the opportunity to bring that to bear so they're close enough to strike you with their fist or bat, for example? And are they acting in a way that a reasonable person would perceive that they are about that ability and opportunity to bear against you. Uh, when someone has ability, opportunity, and jeopardy, then they constitute an imminent attack. And a good way to illustrate that you need all these elements is just to imagine you see a, a uniformed police officer on a street corner. Uh, he's got a pistol on him, of course. He has ability because he has the gun. He has opportunity because he's close enough, if he wanted to, to shoot you with that gun. But there's no jeopardy. There's nothing to indicate a reasonable person that he's about to use that gun against an innocent person. Uh, so without all three of those elements, you don't have an eminent threat. Where people tend to get into trouble is where they're facing a threat that appears genuine. Uh, but it's not yet an eminent threat. So, for example, you see someone who's an aggressor. He's screaming. Uh, He's mad at you for some reason. He's got a bat. He's going to strike you with that bat. I'm going to break your head with this bat, but he's 100 yards away. Uh, he can't yet reach you with the bat, so he doesn't have the opportunity to bring that bat to bear. There's ability. He's got the bat. There's jeopardy. He's threatening to kill you, but there's not yet opportunity. Until he gets close enough to bring that bat to bear, uh, he's not yet an eminent threat. And the law requires that you wait until he's an eminent threat before you can use force in self-defense. Now, you don't wait until he can actually strike you, but you have to wait until he, unless you act, he will be able to strike you in the immediate future. And uh, are there any instances like where words can be enough, or does that have to be words plus actions? So words come up in the context of that jeopardy element. Are they acting in a way that would lead a reasonable person to believe that they are about to attack right now? Uh, the law does not like to allow words alone to constitute jeopardy. So uh, if they're literally doing nothing but speaking to you, no action at all, that's never sufficient to constitute jeopardy. So I'm going to beat you. I'm going to shoot you. As long as there's no physical action consistent with that, the words alone are not enough. The law requires some kind of overt act. What the words can do is provide almost all the jeopardy that's required. So the amount of physical action you need to see can be very slight. Someone says, I'm going to shoot you, and then they make a small motion with their hand as if reaching for a gun. Uh, that small motion with those words can be enough to justify an imminent threat. Um, the small action by itself would mean nothing absent the words. But what the words have done is reduce the amount of physical action you need into a very, very small amount. Uh, the police would call this a furtive movement. The suspect made a furtive movement as if for a weapon. Uh, in combination with the words and other factors, then that becomes sufficient for justification. But if all they're doing is speaking, they're not approaching, they're not in proximity, they don't look like they're reaching for a weapon, they're not pulling back a fist. If there's no physical action, there's only words, the words alone are never enough. Okay. Um, so the common law uh, allows individuals to use force to defend themselves. Um, what does the law say about using force to defend others, third parties? Strictly speaking, the, the law treats defense of others much the same as it treats defense of yourself. In fact, in most states, if you look at the statutes, they simply add a third person pronoun to the self-defense statute. So they'll say you can force in defense of yourself or another person if, and then they'll list those five elements we've already talked about. Unfortunately, the reality is that coming to defense of another person tends to be much more complicated from a practical perspective than acting in your own defense largely because when you're coming to the defense of another person, you often don't know what's really happening. This is particularly true when we're talking about defense of strangers and much less true if we're talking about defense of a family member or a friend or a coworker or somebody we have some familiarity with. Where people tend to get into trouble is when they come to the defense of strangers. Now imagine, for example, that you turn a corner and you see two people fighting and one of them is clearly losing the fight looks like the victim of an attack, and you come to that person's defense. Well, unless you saw the start of the fight, uh, you just turned a corner and the fight was already in progress, uh, you actually don't know who began that conflict. You don't know who the aggressor was, and therefore you don't know who would have been in to use force in their own defense. And under many circumstances, if someone you rescue would not have been entitled to use force in their own defense, you're not entitled to use force in their defense on their behalf. Uh, because if they weren't the innocent party in the fight, they have no right to self-defense. Therefore, you have no right to use force on their behalf. Because 
Obviously, it's the other person then who is the innocent party in that conflict. So that's one reason people get in trouble is because they, they come to the rescue of someone when they don't really know what the circumstances are. The other way they get in trouble is they, they accurately perceive what's happening and they do in fact come to view of the innocent person. But then that innocent person doesn't recount the events as they actually happen to the police. And this often happens in domestic violence type of events. Uh, so a woman being uh, attacked by some man, you come to her rescue. Uh, turns out they're a couple. Uh, he was committing an act of domestic violence on her. Uh, but when she realizes that her husband's going to go to jail for a long time, if she tells the police the truth about what happened, her story begins to change uh, because she doesn't want him going to jail. And it becomes easier for her to say, it wasn't her husband who started the problem. It was you who started the problem. Now, if the person you rescued is telling the police that it was you who was the aggressor in the fight, uh, what are they supposed to believe? Uh, they may very well believe it was you the fight. In which case, you look like the aggressor, and if you look like the aggressor, then you lose on the element of innocence. If you lose on the element of innocence, you don't have a claim of either self-defense or defense of others. Uh, so we urge people to have great caution when coming to the defense of other people. Uh, it's always possible to be a good witness. Everybody has a cell phone. You can call 911. You can video the intervention. It's not that we're telling people to never intervene. Sometimes you'll see a situation in which you feel a, a moral compulsion that you have to intervene. It's just the right thing to do. Uh, but we want people to understand when they make that decision that to be able to make an informed decision about what the risks are that they're taking, both from a physical and from a legal perspective. So I guess, so from, uh, if you're trying to, if you're in the defense of third parties, there's no uh, latitude for reasonable mistakes. Sometimes. Uh, so the way the law is supposed to work is uh, if you perceived an event and you reasonably perceived it and the way um, your perception was incorrect, you might still be okay. Uh, a classic example is you turn a corner and you see a woman being grabbed by a couple of guys and she's screaming, she's being kidnapped and you come to her rescue, you save her. Uh, you take your gun out, you point your gun at them. Kidnapping qualifies as a deadly force uh, attack uh, because of inevitably kidnapped victims are subject to uh, to death or grave bodily harm. So your gun, you come to you come to her defense to prevent her kidnapping, and then it turns out she wasn't being kidnapped. Uh, she was being subject to lawful arrest by two undercover drug uh, detectives. Uh, now, <clears throat> under the law, uh, if there's, there's, there's basically two legal paradigms that can be applied to that scenario. One of them is the reasonable perception paradigm, which is the reasonable mistake paradigm we talked about with the toy gun. Um, you were mistaken about your perception. You thought it was a kidnapping, uh, but you had good reason to believe that because she was shouting that, and it looks like a kidnapping. It's, you made a mistake. It was, in fact, a lawful arrest. But as long as your mistake was a reasonable mistake, then your use of force on her behalf may still be okay. Unfortunately, there are other states that apply a different paradigm, alter ego paradigm. And under the alter ego paradigm, you assume that person's ego. That's why they call it alter ego. In other words, your right to use force in her defense is no greater than her right would have been to use force in her own defense. There is no room for reasonable mistakes under this model. Uh, now, in this case, I just described where the woman claimed kidnapping, but actually being subject to a lawful arrest, her right to use force to resist a lawful arrest is zero. Therefore, under an alter ego paradigm, your right to use force on her defense, no matter what she was saying, no matter what it looked like, is also zero. And now what you've done is you've just committed aggravated assault against two police officers. And that's not going away. Uh, now, not every state applies alter ego and not every state applies alter ego in every circumstance. But unless you've memorized all 50 states and all the circumstances in which they might apply this, the only prudent assumption to make is that you might be subject to alter ego. Um, in which case you need to be very, very cautious before using force in defense of another person. Okay. Um, so you mentioned this earlier, um, some of the myths around uh, you know, use of force when defending yourself. And, it, and it's in relation to your property, like how much force you, like the, the threshold that, you know, sometimes you know, people say, well, the threshold lowers when you're in your home or in your car. Um, is that the case? I mean, what how do things, how does the law change whether you're in your home or in your car? Um, does anything change or does it pretty much stay the same? Uh, typically in most states, it changes in the sense that the law gives you extra dispensation to use force in the context of highly defensible properties. And a highly defensible property is always at least your home. In some states, it's also your place of business. In some states, it's also your motor vehicle. 
And normally how they do this is they provide for a legal presumption of reasonable fees certain conditions are met. Uh, the most common condition is if you're dealing with someone who's a, a genuine intruder who's forcibly entered your home, uh, there's very little you can do that is going to get you into legal trouble in dealing with that particular threat, uh, meaning a genuine intruder who's forcibly entered your home at night. Uh, there, the law gives you the broadest dispensation to use force. And now, that doesn't mean to imply that you absolutely should use force, and in that circumstance, you have to make the, the call yourself, uh, but the law will give you the broadest uh, discretion on the use of force in that circumstance. Where people tend to get into trouble is either dealing with someone who's not a genuine intruder in the home, uh, or they're dealing with um, a situation in which they, they don't qualify for being in their home. For example, um, what qualifies as your home in every state, being inside, literally inside the four walls of your home, qualifies as being in your home. But what about being on your front porch or your back porch or your front yard or your backyard? Uh, whether or not you're going to get that legal presumption that you were in reasonable fear varies from state to state, depending on how broadly they define the scope of your home. Uh, the other way people get in trouble is they're not dealing with a genuine intruder. Uh, the person they use force against is uh, someone else who lives in the home. So someone they share an apartment with or a spouse, for example, or a sibling or, or someone uh, they've invited as a guest, either someone who's come to a party or uh, 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 a maintenance guy they've invited into their home. Uh, often the law will say, well, that person's not actually an intruder there. They were invited there. They're lawfully prone. Therefore, you don't have this extra dispensation to use force. Uh, now, the good thing about someone who's uh, merely a guest is it's very easy to turn a guest into a trespasser, someone who's not lawfully present. You simply tell them to get out. And if they refuse to get out, then they've become a trespasser and you've regained that extra pri privilege to use force in self-defense. Okay. And, and what about the uh, use of force in defensive property? Like, say, if someone's trying to steal your car or you see someone in your, you walk into your garage and you see someone stealing stuff from your garage. Um, what does the law say about using force in those situations? Right. So it's a great question. We really need to distinguish between what we just described, what we just talked about, which is highly defensible forms of property and regular personal. Uh, highly defensible forms of property are typically your home, sometimes your place of business, sometimes your occupied vehicle, a vehicle in which you're present. Uh, outside of that scope, Everything else is really personal property. So any item you could pick up and carry around. Uh, so for example, you're at a Starbucks and you have your laptop case next to you with your computer in it. Uh, some dude picks it up and tries to run off with it. It's taken your personal property. It's got nothing to do with your home, your business, or one of those highly defensible places. Uh, in pretty much every state, with one notable exception, you're only allowed to use non-deadly force in defense of personal property. Uh, simple, tangible property. Um, <clears throat> even then, there can be further restrictions. Often, you to do that if you're in while it's happening or if you're in hot pursuit of the person. In other words, if someone surreptitiously takes your laptop bag and you see them the next day walking down the street with it and it's monogrammed, there's no question that it's yours, you're not allowed to use any degree of force to recover that bag because it's not actually currently happening. You're expected to call the police and let them deal with the situation. Uh, people tend to get into trouble with this because they use too much force. They might, for example, go to a gun to protect a piece of personal property, give my laptop case back. Uh, well, you're not allowed to use deadly force in defense of personal property. So what you just did was commit an aggravated assault with a firearm. You weren't acting within the bounds of the law. Or one of the most common myths in America is that you can threaten someone with deadly force if they're simply trespassing on open land. Um, Open land is not treated as highly to form of property. It's not a home. It's not a place of business. It's not the type of property that provides shelter or protection to people. It's just open land. Uh, you can use non-deadly force to remove a simple trespasser, trespasser from open land, but you can't use deadly force. Uh, now, I mentioned there was one state that has an exception to this. Texas actually has a statute, Penal Code 9.42, that does allow for the deadly force in defense of property. It's the only state that has this kind of pr provision, uh, but there are a lot of hoops that have to be jumped through in order to qualify. And I would urge people, even if you live in Texas, please don't, because if you fail to jump through any of the hoops, uh, and it can be complicated to do that kind of analysis while you're in the stress of the moment, if you fail to jump through any of the hoops, you don't qualify for the protection of the student, and then your use of force was not lawful, and you're facing serious legal jeopardy. Okay. So if it's personal property, at most, maybe grab the guy, that's it, you know, to get your thing back, 
but uh, that's about all you want to do, and then go to the police. Or, or you might be able to use other forms of non-deadly force. So, for example, someone stealing your laptop, you might be justified in using pepper spray to come stealing your laptop. That's a non-deadly force of, that's a non-deadly form of force. Uh, so you're you're properly limiting yourself to non-deadly force in defense of that property. What you don't want to do is be in a position where the only tool you have is a gun, and you end up going to the gun under circumstances in which it's not justified. Uh, now, I can tell you, my personal feeling is that. Uh, I would not be inclined to use any degree of force to protect personal property. I mean, I live and die by my laptop. My laptop is basically my office, uh, but I'm very careful to keep it backed up. Uh, and I don't think I would want to get a physical, potentially life-threatening fight to protect a piece of property that I could easily replace by going to the Apple store, getting another one, and just reinstalling the uh, the backup to the system. Right. Not worth it. Not worth it. Not worth dying over. Right, right. Um, one of the things... One of the things I stress to people, Brett, that they, anytime they're contemplating using force against another person, they have to keep in mind on the physical level, there's no way to reduce the risk to you of a fight to zero. There's always the possibility you could end up seriously injured or dead from a physical fight. And in the legal context, there's no way to reduce the legal risk to zero, even if you do everything right. Because keep in mind, Nobody who's going to be judging your conduct, the police, the prosecutor, the judge, the jury, those people were there when you acted in self-defense or in defense of a piece of property. They don't know what really happened. All they know is what the evidence suggests happened. And the evidence might suggest that you did within the bounds of lawful self-defense. They could conclude that mistakenly, but that doesn't matter. If they conclude that you fall outside the rules of the bound of self-defense, Sometimes innocent people get convicted. That's just the way it is. There are mistakes that can happen in the system. So there's no way to reduce the legal risk to zero. And what that means as a practical matter is anytime you get into a physical conflict with somebody, there's a possibility you could be seriously injured or dead. Possibility you could go to jail. You could get convicted and go to jail for a long time. And what I always try to encourage people to think about is what would you be prepared to go to jail for and for and still have it have been worth it? Uh, so you can you point a gun at someone, commit an aggravated assault, you could be sentenced to, say, 10 or 15 years in jail, some states 20 years in jail. Under what circumstances on the last day of that 20th year would you be able to look back and say, you know what, if I had to do it again, I would still do it because it would have been worth it, even knowing I was going to spend 20 years in jail. And if you think about it in that context, it should be a very, very short list of circumstances in which you could say to yourself, it was still worth spending 20 years in jail. Uh, to save your life so you're not dead. I'd rather be dead in prison than alive outside. I'm sorry. I'd rather be alive in prison than dead outside of prison. Uh, to save the life of uh, your family, absolutely. Uh, but over a piece of property, uh, are you prepared to spend years of your life in jail over a piece of property? Because that's the risk you're taking when you act in defense of property, much less someone else's property, much less someone else's security. And when you come to the stranger, you're taking a risk that you could end up spending much of the rest of your life in jail. And frankly, for, for most of those circumstances, I tend to think of my, to myself, you know, when I became an adult, I got a concealed carry permit. I got a gun. I learned how to use it. I learned what the rules are. I made sure I was proficient. That other person could have done that, but they didn't. And why is their failure to meet that fundamental responsibility suddenly my problem? Uh, I would be most inclined to be a good witness. So people always have to keep in mind that anytime you're thinking about getting engaged in a against another person, uh, it could cause you serious injury, a lot of time in jail, a lot of money, uh, and you better have been able to tell yourself after the fact that it was worth having done that or it'll be a pretty sorry state of affairs. Right. I think it's interesting because we've had several you know, self-defense experts on the podcast before. Um, and it's funny, you know, we'll talk about like different things you can do, uh, to prepare, but like the, all of them, all their advice is like, just avoid the fight, do whatever you have to do to avoid the con escalating the conflict and just get out of there. Like that's like, I mean, that's like the, 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 the number one rule they all have to say. And, and those guys are very skilled at what they do. I mean, they're excellent combatives, experts. Uh, but the truth is the best way to win a gunfight or a knife fight or any kind of fight for people like us is to be someplace else. Right. So, uh, Andrew, I mean, I, I thought of this funny hypothetical I wanted to really about because I remember this from law school days and I think it was torts. And I wanted to get your, your take on this. Let's say uh, you're in a situation, you're defending yourself using non-lethal force. You know, say a guy's just punching you, so you decide to punch back. Um, 
But through some freak accident, the guy gets bodily like maimed or he dies. Um, you didn't intend that at all. What are the criminal and civil consequences of that? So I should mention up front, I, fo- I tend to focus on the criminal aspect of things, less the civil. Uh, and, and Okay, so let's focus on the, let's focus on the criminal aspect. No, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to address the civil, but I, I want to explain why I, I, I chose that emphasis. And, and it's simply because I feel like if I can keep my clients out of jail, they can always make more money. Uh, in the, so to my mind, the civil is rather less important. And especially these days, frankly, when there's a number of organizations out there that offer various forms of kind of self-defense insurance for having acted in self-defense, uh, you can't really get that kind of uh, protection in the, in the criminal context. Uh, but normally, if someone attacks you and you use a particular degree of force, uh, the perception of whether or not that degree of force was justified is from your subjective perception of the threat. If it turns out that other person has some uh, unforeseeable weakness, uh, that if you simply punch them in a way that would normally not cause death or grave bodily injury, but they suffer some kind of cerebral hemorrhage because of their inherent weakness, you're not expected to know that and you're going to be held accountable for that. Uh, that's different than if you do something that is foreseeable that would have caused them death or grave bodily harm. So, for example, normally if you just someone punches you and you shove them back, uh, that would be a non-deadly force, uh, self-defense, perfectly appropriate. But if they're standing on the edge of a cliff and you shove them, uh, you know they're going over the cliff. Um, and that's foreseeable. So that would be perceived as a deadly form of self-defense. It's just a shove, but it's a shove that's foreseeably going to cause them death or grave bodily harm because of other circumstances of which you were aware. But if you weren't aware of them, it's not going to be a cause of liability for you. Gotcha. Um, so after all that we talked about this, through the nuances of self-defense, the, um, the legalities of it, how should that tr- change the way people train when defending themselves? Well, it, it's interesting because as you can imagine, People come to, we, we do classes on this for the country. We do 30 or 40 of these a year and pretty much every state. And throughout the whole day of the class, we're basically telling people what I've been saying on this program. Don't get into a fight. If you don't have to, the risks, the physical risks and the legal risks are really tremendous. So if you can possibly avoid it, avoid it. Um, unfor- but they, people also have to recognize that there may come a point in which you can no avoid it. And then you have to fight in order to defend yourself. Uh, one of the things we do is we run people through a shooting simulator, self-defense simulator using a laser pistol and a, a video of an attack. And sometimes what we see is people are, they've gotten the message of don't fight, don't fight, don't fight. And they're facing this video threat and they, they don't fight, they don't fight, they don't fight. But they don't fight for so long that the video kills them simulator. Uh, and so what people need to keep in mind is there's a long period in which you don't want to fight. And then when the circumstances are met in which you're legally authorized to fight, you might need to go to 100 miles an hour and fight hard right now. Uh, so what we really are trying to encourage people to do is not simply to tell them not to fight, but make sure they understand the circumstances in which it's not allowed so that they know the circumstances in which it is lawfully fight. So when they reach that threshold, they don't have to be tentative. They don't, the situation's not ambiguous. They know that now is the time to fight 100% and win that physical conflict. We don't want them to fight before because of all the risks we talked about, but we do want them to fight as rigorously as possible once the law permits them, assuming that's necessary. So I, so it's sounding like you know active simulations are probably one of the best ways to, to do that. Especially simulations that correctly uh, establish kind of the legal elements so that the people are being tested and challenged on knowing when that threshold has been crossed. Uh, the key is people can't use force too soon uh, because that's not lawful. We don't want them to use force too late because that means they've lost the physical fight if they use force too late. And if you lose the physical fight, everything else becomes rather less pressing. Uh, so they have to be able to identify under stress what that threshold is when it's been reached so they know when they're allowed to fight. Uh, that's why we teach this law of self-defense stuff so people can identify where that threshold is and be able to fight uh, decisively when the law permits it. Awesome. And I guess also training that threshold, right? Making sure you're not using lethal force when you should have used non-lethal force. Absolutely. And, and this is, by the way, something that, uh, you know, we tell people when they, when they buy our book, for example, uh, don't just read the book cover to cover and think that you're done. This is a lifelong pursuit. Just like when you own a firearm, you don't, responsible people don't just go out, buy a gun, throw it in the nightstand and consider themselves done. 
Uh, you practice with it. You dry fire with it. You make sure that you maintain your proficiency. That applies to this legal knowledge, too. We encourage people when they read about a, a, a self-defense event in the newspaper, on TV, on the Internet, apply the knowledge they've acquired from the book or our classes. Look for those five elements. Try to figure out where a person could have done a better job. Could have they have made their self-defense case stronger? What did they do that weakened their claim of self-defense? Uh, were they in a position when they used force to be legally entitled to use that force? It's a kind of mental dry firing in the legal context. When you're under stress, you need to be able to make these decisions quickly. So you want that knowledge to be fresh and actionable in your mind. Awesome. Well, Andrew, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about uh, your book and your work? Uh, the best way to look, uh, learn about our book and our work is at our uh, website. It's simple, www.lawofselfdefense.com. Uh, as I mentioned, we do classes all over the country. We have an instructor's program. We have, uh, of course, the book and uh, all kinds of ways that people can access this information. Awesome. Well, Andrew Bronca, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brett. My guest today is Andrew Bronca. He's the author of the book, The Law of Self-Defense. It's available on Amazon.com. Also check out Andrew's website, lawofselfdefense.com, where you find more information about his work. And finally, check out our show notes at aom.is slash self-defense law, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. As always, we appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.